Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Well, it's good to be back together. It's good to have music again this week. I won't tell you what the guy did last week who led worship, but it's good to have uh, Jacob back with us. And we're starting a brand new month. Welcome to the month of August. It's hard to believe that July has come and has passed. Uh, July is typically my favorite month of the summer because everything that happens in our city and none of that stuff happened this year, but it was still a beautiful month and a great time to be outdoors in uh, this place we call Portland. Uh, If you've been with us the last several weeks, I know some of you haven't, so we're glad to have the visitors with us or people who are returning with us who have been gone for various reasons. We've been looking at the book of Philippians And we've titled this series, Priorities. And we're asking ourselves, what is it that I am living for? How is it I'm prioritizing my life around that thing? Last week, the author of this letter, uh, the Apostle Paul, told us that the Christian faith and our mission is not individualistic, but rather it's communal in nature. Now we recognize that this is hard for us as Americans because we are kind of trained to be very individualistic. And it's all about me and I'm numero uno, and I'm looking out for myself and my family. And we saw that Paul showed us this is not an accurate, accurate picture of how the church is to be. The church is not to operate that way. Uh, we talked about it being like a team sport. Uh, the church is not to be like a swimmer or someone playing golf, but rather it's to be a sport where we need one another. And this week we're going to start chapter 2 in the book of Philippians. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles if you have them to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't, if you have the app on your phone, I'm not sure if they're on the sheet this week or not, but Philippians chapter 2. And what we're going to see is the Apostle Paul is going to follow up from last week, and it's almost as if he's going to anticipate the rejection. He's going to anticipate the pushback that he's going to receive from saying, hey guys, you need to unify and you need to work together instead of fighting against one another. And so it's almost like Paul, like we're going to Paul and saying, Paul, That sounds really, really good. That sounds really, really nice. But have you ever spent much time with people? I mean, other people, not me. Like, I'm I'm great to be around. But have you ever spent time with anyone else? Relationships, Paul, are really, really hard. Apparently, you don't know that. Maybe they were different when you were writing this letter. But here in 2020, relationships are really, really tough. Whether we're talking about friendships, whether we're talking about our spouses, whether we're talking about our roommates, or whether we're talking about our, our coworkers, or maybe the people we live next door to. There's a reason we call something new the honeymoon phase, if you're familiar with that term. I mean, even like coming out to the park a few weeks ago, like the honeymoon phase. This is great. We're at the park. And now some of you are probably like, I got to drive 15 minutes. Like I could walk (laughs) to the smile station or I could walk to the stamp building. And and now there's sprinklers and these dancers. And so the honeymoon's kind of worn off. Maybe you moved into a new place with a new roommate and you think this is going to be the best place. And you and that roommate are like, we're going to have weekly dinners together and we're going to have movie nights. And on the weekends, we're going to invite all of our friends over and we're going to have a fire pit. And this is the best thing ever until a few months into that relationship with that new roommate. And there's a major conflict. And all of a sudden that roommate that was your bestie, you no longer want to talk to that person. And you see that dirty dish in the sink and you're like, they better clean that dish because that's their dish. I did not dirty that. And all of a sudden, you guys don't even want to talk to one another, and you're trying to find a new place and get out of your lease. Or maybe you start a new job, and you think, this is amazing. I hated my last job, and I had the worst coworkers. This is the best thing ever. And then a few months in, something happens, and you realize, this job's worse than my last job. We see this a lot in the city of Portland. 
People will show up to our church because they think this is great. This is new. This is exciting. I could not find community at those big churches. If I named the big churches, you would know the ones I'm talking about. And they would say those were, they were good, but they just couldn't find what I was looking for. Because they find us, they get, you guys are small. And we're like, well, you are small. And this is great because I have community. Everyone knows me and I know everyone. And then about six months later, if they do you the courtesy, a lot of times they don't, they leave for the very same reason that they found us. And they'll say, well, I just couldn't find community. And, and so now I've kind of, there's a lack of that. So I'm just going to leave and go elsewhere. So when you interact with these types of situations in your life, when, you, when you're in relationships with people, which unless you're a hermit, then you, you are in a relationship with people, what do you do? What happens when you become disillusioned with your roommates, with your friendships, with your spouse, with your community, with your church? What are you going to do? What is your response going to be? People typically respond in one of three ways. And maybe you can relate to one of these ways. The first response, probably one of the most popular, is you leave. You say, I don't have to put up with this. I don't have to continue to live with this person. I don't have to continue to be in this friendship. I got to find a new job. I'm going to quit and and go elsewhere. And so you just leave. You get a new friend. You get a new roommate. You get a new spouse. You get a new church. And here's the thing. This actually works. Now, you may not have been anticipating me saying that, but this actually works for about six months. And then the same problems you had with the former friend or roommate or spouse or church, all of a sudden what was new has worn off and you find that the same problem is occurring again. It's like the problem has followed you. Maybe it's because the problem oftentimes is you. The second possibility or way that people respond is they retreat. You kind of retreat into isolation. You know, I found myself even saying this recently. I just want to leave and go live on an island somewhere by myself. I mean, with my wife and and kids, of course, but I want to go and live on an island maybe by myself. So this is the person we see. They leave community after community. They leave church after church in search of the perfect one. The mentality sounds something like this. I've tried to live with three or four different people for my roommates, and I just just can't find the perfect one. There's something wrong with all of them, so I'm just going to live by myself. I've tried three or four churches, and I tell you, every time there's, there's this type of leader or there's this, or they don't have these things. So at this point, I'm just going to, this is me and Jesus. Like, I'm just going to do a, this alone thing. But the problem is, and the Apostle Paul showed us this last week. If you weren't with us, go back and read Philippians 1. Just read the whole chapter. It's really, really good. We weren't meant to live alone. We weren't meant to do this life alone. And the third response, and this is the one that I'm going to advocate for, and this is the one that I believe the Apostle Paul is going to advocate for, is you stay and fight when things get hard, when things get tough, when things don't go the way that you want them to go, Paul's going to kind of say, get over yourself. We'll see that in a few minutes. This isn't Matt talking. This is Paul talking. But stay and fight because things will never be perfect. But will you do the hard work? And this is really kind of what I'm saying to you, church, is will you do the hard work of sticking around, sticking it out, and fighting when conflicts come up? And will we work together as one unified body called the church? We can find a million reasons we can get a whiteboard up here and we can jot down all the reasons that we shouldn't be unified and all the things that divide us and all the things that we don't like about one another, even though we wouldn't say those in public, but would say them at home maybe or in our own mind, or why we should be gathering this way or not this way. But will you stick it out and fight and, and become a unified body called the church? And so here's kind of the main point of the sermon on the front end. The Apostle Paul is going to say, look to the reality of the gospel. 
And we, and we looked at that, I think, two weeks ago. We looked at the gospel every week. But a couple weeks ago, we looked specifically kind of at the gospel and what he means by that and how he unpacks that and how you should put on your gospel lenses when you wake up in the morning of how you live your life. He's going to say, on that basis of that reality that is true, whether you feel like it is or not, on those days that you're not so sure that God is faithful, we're the ones who aren't, Paul's going to command the church to be unified by being humble and caring, looking to Christ as the perfect example of humble servanthood. And so we're going to see our passage broken down into two sections this morning. In section one, we're going to see Paul's encouragement to unity and the faith and service of one another. And so the Philippians are going to be encouraged to live out their life in Christ and the Spirit by living in unity. And so he's going to show us that in the first few verses. And then the second part is going to come in and say, now this is actually practically how that looks. So it's going to kind of set a big picture. Here's what we're going after. And then it'll come in in the second part and say, here's how you actually do that day in and day out. Because the church at Philippi, as we've looked at, was fairly healthy when you compare it to some of the other letters that Paul wrote, some of the other churches. We'd say, this is a, a good church. This is a healthy church. But the one thing that threatened this church was disunity. And there's a sense in which that danger is the reality for every healthy church. That, that's a reality for, for our church, that there could be disunity. And it is against this danger that Paul wishes to safeguard this church, his friends, these people that he loves dearly. And so Paul's going to urge them to be one so that they'll be able to endure suffering when it's caused by those outside the church. Now, can you imagine if there's disunity happening and then there's spiritual attacks happening around a group of believers? Like, you're just going to crumble and you're going to fall because you're basing your, your church, your, your faith community on something that will crumble. He says, but it's also I want you to unify because when you unify, it's going to heal divisions caused by those inside the church. Okay, so that's another reality. So if you've ever wondered, like, why do we have, why do we have spiritual warfare? Why do we have attacks outside the church? Like, why, why is it us kind of thinking here in this group? Because, no, if you read the New Testament, this has been happening forever, practically, since there was a church. What about things inside the church? Like, man, is there, this seems kind of weird. Like, no, that's also always been happening. It's, it's, in a sense, it's normative. It's one of those normative things that we don't want to recognize. But what he's saying you have to do is you have to safeguard against it. And by living out these verses we're going to look at today and unify in the midst of that. Once, once again, um, unity doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we're always going to agree on everything. But it's how it is that we live that out. And how is it that we disagree as people of faith? So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for uh, this beautiful day. God, we have amazing weather here in the summer. And we just thank you for your creation what a great reminder as we stand here in the middle of uh, an extinct volcano and can just look around at the trees and the flowers and the birds and the bees and, and God, even having the sprinklers on this morning, it just, it's just a beautiful sight. And God, that your people are here together. God, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, our lives. 2020 has been filled with things that could cause disunity in this church and our church and the church of Portland. But God, we pray that this morning that these verses would um, really touch our hearts and that we would leave here um, further following you and living these out because of you, not because of who we are. In your name, amen. All right, Philippians 2, verse 1. Paul comes in and he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in this, the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul comes in, and he's not doubting that these things are happening. He's not doubting that there's encouragement or participation in the Spirit or affection for one another. Rather, he's using this, what we call a conditional if. 
And so he, he's really causing, uh, he wants to um, provoke reflection in them. It's more of a reminder of the things that, that are being done and the things that they are to be doing. So he's not coming in and accusing them. Sometimes when I preach, some of you come to me and say, were you accusing me? Were you pointing fingers at me? Like, no, I'm kind of provoking a reflection out of you. And these are more statements that Paul's saying, because these things are true, and because I know that you're doing these things, you know, sometimes I go to my kids and say, well, I know because you know this is what you're supposed to be doing, I'm going to trust that you're doing it, even though I'm not really sure always. So he's kind of coming in and saying, because I know that these are true, now let me tell you what to do. And so he's, he's emphasizing, you must be of the same mind. You, know, you must be on the same page. Once again, there may be some nuances there, but you must have the same mind. And it, it's not implying that uniformity, but rather the Philippians are to use their diverse gifts. So even look around this morning, I would say we have a diverse set of gifts. Some of us are really, really gifted in some areas, and some of us are really, really gifted in other areas, and you wouldn't want to cross those over. So he's saying, use those gifts in an agreeable, cooperative spirit with a focus on the glory of God. So how does he come together and say, let's use our gifts for one common purpose in this mission that we are on? Paul, we must remember, is in prison. He's writing this letter, waiting for a possible execution. And he says, the one thing that will make me happy is you, Philippian believers, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do you see how important this idea of a unified church is to the Apostle Paul? I mean, if I was in prison, can I, can I say that you know, this morning I'm sending a text message to you guys and here, this is going to be what's going to make me really, really happy. That you're, I'm probably thinking like, that's the last thing on my mind. I got to figure out how I'm going to get out of here. I got to figure out what my family's doing. But Paul says, this is the one thing that's going to make me happy. And the three statements he makes are essentially him saying the same thing. Now, if you say something three different ways, but you're, you're, you're saying the same thing, what are you doing? You're stressing a point. And so he's stressing a point to the church here. And so let's imagine for a minute that you're the Apostle Paul, that you're in prison, you get to stress one thing, and you get that group text or the Facebook update. What is the message that you send out to your family and friends? What is it that you're going to say, this is going to complete my joy? I believe that the reason this is the thing that will complete Paul's joy is because God's work in the world is not about saving us individually. In other words, Paul's not thinking about himself. If I'm in prison, I am thinking about myself. How do I get out of here? What are they going to feed me for lunch? Is it going to be edible? You know, do I have Wi-Fi in prison? These are the things I'm thinking about. But Paul says, no, I'm not going to think about myself. I'm going to think about this community, this church, and how it is that we are not only saved to... Um, Reconciled to God, but back to one another. What does it look like as we are formed as the people of God? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. So we enter into that life together with other Christians, not as those who make demands, but as those who thankfully receive. We do not complain about what God does not give us. Rather, we are thankful for what God does give us daily. And so what we need to do as the church is we need to realize who we are in Jesus. Not who we are in ourselves or our networks, our relationships or denominations or any of that, but who it is that we are in Jesus. And we need to realize that there's only one thing in the world and that this family is made of scattered people throughout the world. This is why we can relate to, to other churches and other Christians all throughout other countries because we ultimately realize who it is that we are in Jesus 
And he invites us not only into another way of being. In other words, once you come into Christ, hopefully you've realized that you are very different. You're a new creation now. But also we have a whole new story to tell. You know, we keep saying this week in, week out because we found ourselves in 2020 and we didn't control any of those circumstances. But if you just turn on the news or just walk downtown or even in our, your neighborhood in our city, our, we're looking for a different story to tell. We are, we are looking for some hope. And we have been given that. It's like we've been handed this and say, what is it you're going to do now with this message? Now, we can choose to be very selfish with that and say, well, you know, I'm just going to be comfortable with it and keep it to myself. And um, even, even, hey, we'll just, we'll just gather on Sundays together and we don't have to tell anybody else about it. And I don't want to interact with anybody else. But we have a whole new story to tell to the world around us. And I feel like right now, maybe of all times, those who know us, those who know you, and they know you to be a person of faith, they know you to be a Christ follower, they're actually kind of looking at how it is that you're responding in this moment. How is it that they are responding in this cultural moment? Because I know how I'm responding, and I know how the city's responding. How is it that you as a person of faith are responding? And so Paul's going to say that we need to unify together, and that we need to live out our faith in the midst of the, of the possibility of disunity, regardless what it is that's being thrown our way. Now, this is a side note. I'll tell you guys, originally I had about four more pages of notes, and so be thankful that I whittled this down. So just as a side note here, when you think about this idea of community and coming together as the, as the body of Christ, this isn't so that you, that you aren't alone on Friday night. It's not so just so that you have friends, although those things are usually included. But the driving motivation behind our community is that we somehow mirror the goodness and the image of the triune God. So have you ever thought about that? That we are a picture, that we are a mirror and an image to the world around us? of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the, and the relationship that they have with one another. Now, Paul goes on to verse 3 to say this. I think it's going to be the rest, for the rest of 2020, these two verses are going to be my verse, or verses. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That'll preach right there. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So before we proceed whether you're on your phone or whether you have uh, your physical Bible in front of you, highlight that verse or those two verses. Highlight that. Because imagine if we lived this out for the remainder of the year as the church. And Paul's going to come in and say, the reason these two verses are so important is there's three great causes, three great threats of disunity found in these verses. He says, first, there is selfish ambition. You know, he's told us in, uh, a couple weeks ago that, that we are to advance the gospel. That's what we're to do as the people of God. But there's this danger of the selfish ambition that we are not working to advance the gospel. We are working to advance ourselves. And I know that may even sound silly, but, but sometimes people even interact with the church because they see there's some kind of advancement for themselves. Paul says, no, you, you're to not do that. Don't have selfish ambition. The second great cause of disunity says there's a desire for personal prestige. The aim of a Christian is not to put themselves up on a platform, not to put themselves up on a pedestal. We don't do good deeds in order that others may glorify us. We don't go serve at the Portland Rescue Mission or at the farmer's market or at these schools so that people will go like, oh man, well, you know, look at so-and-so. They show up every single time. Man, they're always there. They're, they're always giving their time. We don't do that so that we get that recognition from others, but we do that so that we're glorifying to God. And so Christians, Paul's saying, our desire should be to focus people's eyes not upon ourselves, but upon God. So even if you are the one and you do sacrifice and you're the one who's always showing up to these things, that, that you're going, I'm doing it for his glory, not for my glory. 
And the third great cause of disunity is there's a concentration on self. If we are always concerned first and foremost with ourselves, there is a great danger and very likelihood that conflict will come your way. Because when you're concentrated only on yourself, it it eliminates the need of others. If you're your main object of life, then you're going to be in conflict. Because you know why? Because that's not your main object. If my main object is me, well, that's not yours. Your main object is probably you. So we're going to very quickly get into conflict with one another. I could give so many examples on this one, but uh, the one I decided to write down was conflict in marriage. Have you ever moved into a new house? Anybody? Yes. Okay. I've moved into a new house really recently. I've got to be careful because my wife's sitting six feet away from me. Uh, but yeah, throwing rocks around her. So I moved into a house and what happens? I want things a certain way. I want this picture here and I want the color of the wall here and I think this table and couch goes here. But guess what? Andrea also has a way that she wants certain things. Sometimes those line up, but honestly, most times they don't line up. Now, men, we all know the smart thing to do, right? Just to shut our mouths and let our wife put this stuff wherever she wants in the house, however she sees fit. But if you're like me, sometimes you just can't help yourself. Maybe you've had too much coffee or there's just something else in your day. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to lay my foot down because I don't think that looks right there. It just doesn't make sense in the room. And so you go ahead and open your mouth and you put your foot in it normally. (laughs) But those trivial things also become these big fights. And it turns into something huge. And you look back and you scratch your head and say, how did we let a picture on the wall become the blow up of our Friday night where we didn't sit and necessarily watch a movie? And this will cause division and separation, which is the opposite of what Paul is telling us here. What Paul wants us to do is he's saying there's a sacrifice. He's saying, Matt, you know, I can see my big brother, Paul, Paul come and say, Matt, man, you need to give up some of your personal preference for Andrea. In the case of the church, he's saying you need to give up some of your personal preference for the good of the whole. You may not like where we meet, when we meet, how we meet, the, you know, the time that we meet. You may not like that we only do four songs or how long the sermon is or all of these things. And we should look at all those things. But Paul's saying, but sometimes you just need to get over yourself for the good of the whole. And what Paul is doing here, he's actually helping diagnose the human heart. This disease called sin that leads to our selfishness. Because if you ever wonder, where does selfishness come from? It comes from sin, our human nature. Let me ask you this. Why is it we always think everyone else needs to change in order to make things better? Think about your house. Think about our church. Think about your neighborhood. It's always those other people, right? I mean, our street would be so much better if they would just cut their grass. Okay, I'm guilty of saying that one. Sometimes I've cut neighbor's grass and not even told them. Um, This would just be so much better if they would change. Why is it as I am talking up here this morning, you're thinking of others that need to hear this message instead of you? You think, man, I really wish so-and-so was here right now, or I wish I could maybe just kind of put this on speakerphone for them. It's because Paul has accurately identified our disease called sin. And as a church, what he's going to say is we have the opportunity to actually come in and tell a different story by looking to Christ as our example. This should be the relational culture that we strive to have in our faith family. This means that we should not only be concerned about our own health and property and wealth and those things, but that we should also be concerned of those things and other people. That's why even in in, in the church, this idea of just like, if you look at Acts 2, I love the picture of the church, but we should even be just taking care of one another's needs. You know, now I always come back and say, you have to open your mouth and let us know you have those needs, but that we should be taking care of others' needs. That if there's something that you need, let us know. We can hopefully come together and meet it because it's not only about my items and and my life. 
In other words, we should make the good of others as high as a priority as our own well-being, which admittedly is not easy, but would result in unity. If you were looking out to others' needs as much as you were looking out to your own, I guarantee we would be unified. But for some reason, it's so hard for us to do that. It's like I'm right-handed. It's like I'm trying to write with my left hand. Like I can do it a little bit, and then I get off, and you guys are looking, I can't read this. What does this say? So here's my challenge for you before we get into the second half of the passage. I imagine right now there's someone in your life that you're frustrated with. Don't point any fingers if they're here. But I imagine there's someone that you're frustrated with. There's someone that you're probably disappointed in right now. There's someone that you've got something with that you think, I don't know if I want to talk to that person right now or ever again. So here's my challenge. What would it look like for you to live out verses three and four this week in that relationship? Ask yourself this, what's their greatest need? If you don't know, ask them. Say, you know what? I was at church this weekend. Especially if it was in a non-Christian, like, this would be a huge testimony. I was at church this weekend and we looked at these two verses and you know, you'd be upfront with them while you're upset and just say, but what's your greatest need? Now, if they come to you and say, like, I need a Lamborghini, I'm sure you can't meet that. But if you can help meet that need, then figure out how you can do something sacrificial for that person this week. And so that's, that's your, I don't usually give homework, but that's one of your homework assignments is take those two verses and to pray about that. Now, let's transition to the second half of the passage. And now Paul's going to come in and he's going to say, here's how you go about actually doing this. Here's how you actually go about living this out. So look at verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so we see our minds need to be reflecting on the proper model if our life is to be lived out this way. Our proper model is Jesus. So oftentimes we're placing our identity and our trust in someone else. Maybe it is your spouse. Maybe it is a friend. He says, no, to have your proper mind, it needs to be, your model needs to be Jesus. Jesus who lived a perfect life and who never let us down. And Jesus, who in verse 6, it says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, prior to the incarnation, Christ was in the form of God. And so, having the form of God is roughly equivalent to having equality with God. And it's directly contrasted with having the form of a servant. Now, we don't have time to really, there's a lot in this passage that we're not going to get real, real deep in all of it, but at some point, maybe we could. Maybe if you show up Wednesday and we can pray and then we can dive into this further. But think about the Son of God is and has always been God. Sometimes people think, well, Jesus came and he was born as a baby. Like, yes, the, the, the human side of God, yes, did that. But Jesus has always been. And remarkably, Christ, when he was here on earth, did not imagine that having quality with God should lead him to hold on to his privileges. It was not something to be grasped. Instead, he had this mindset of service. Christ said, I didn't come to please myself. Christ didn't live with the selfish mentality that we are plagued with and that we walk around with. But it says, in humility, he counted others' interests more significant than his own. And so Jesus has served as our ultimate example. Jesus doesn't just tell us what to do, but he actually lives this out. You know, it's one thing for me to stand up here and say, you should go do these things. You should live this way. And sometimes you guys could get a big mirror and say, but Matt, look at you. Are you doing this? So Jesus can't do that. Jesus tells us these things, but then Jesus actually models them and lives them out. And, and Jesus is you know, the God-man. He has the nature of man. He has the nature of Jesus. But he lays down his rights for the good of our relationship with him, which allows for us to do the same thing in our relationships. And so by Jesus laying down his rights and modeling what that looks like and not accessing the rights that he has, this allows us to do the same thing in our relationship, whether it's with our spouses or whether it's our friendships or with our roommates or our coworkers. 
that we can basically lay down our right to being right. Have you ever thought about that? Like there are areas where it's like, I have a right. Like in my house, I mean, I, I think I might actually be the only one on the loan. So I'm in the mortgage, we're on that mortgage together. And I'm like, well, I have a right to say, this is where I want the picture on the wall. But what does it look like for me to lay down that right to say, you know what? You put the picture wherever the heck you want. And that's what I'm trying to do. Getting, getting coached by guys like Carrie on, on how to do those things better. <laughs> and so what does it look like to lay down my rights for the good of the relationship? Whether it's that friendship or that coworker. What about in the good of our church? What does it look like for me to lay down my rights for the good and for the unity of the body? And think about it, it's not about your rights, but it's about the good of the relationship. This is really, really hard for us as Americans because I can already hear you saying, actually, I'm saying it in my own mind, so nobody else is saying it. Even as I'm up here, I'm saying, but what if I get walked all over? What if I get stepped on? What if I get taken advantage of? Those are some really, really, really real things. <laughs> and we don't have time to unpack that this morning, but I think what does it look like to posture our life of laying down our rights, generally speaking? And if we're doing it all together, we'll notice if you're getting walked all over and we'll kind of grab you and say, hey, that's unhealthy. I don't know if it meant to that degree. But I think most often case, we default to, let me just put myself out there first and not worry about anybody else. Continues in verse seven. It says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, Paul's not saying that Christ became less than God or gave up some divine attributes. Rather, Paul is stressing that Christ, he had all the privileges and all the rights as the king of the universe. Those were rightfully his. It wasn't something he had to try and go get. He had those. He gave those up to become an ordinary Jewish baby bound for the cross. Christ the city emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. How many of you want to be a servant? You know, I was a server for about 10 years at restaurants. And you think like, man, you get to treat it badly and the pay is usually not that great and you just have to do everyone's demands. But it says Christ willingly emptied himself. He became a servant and he was born in the likeness of men. And while he had every right to stay comfortable where he was, his love drove him to a position of weakness for the sake of sinful mankind. It says then 2 Corinthians 8, 9, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty might become rich. When Paul writes that Christ emptied himself, he doesn't mean that Christ emptied himself of his divinity. He still had his divinity or even his divine attributes. But he's stressing that he, even though he had all of those attributes that were rightfully his, they were humbly set aside by becoming a man and suffering in our place. So sometimes you have these rights, but what does it look like to set those rights aside for the good of the whole? Verse 8, it continues, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it's remarkable enough that God would come and take on a human form and being Jesus. I mean, even, even just that, like, that would be like, wow, that's, that's incredible. Like, why would he do that? But he goes further. He enters into the broken world. Now, let's be real. If you could, like, somehow not be who you are right now, and you could peer down into what's happening in the world. Let's just say you're the age that you are now, and you have this option, like, hey, you can, you can, you can jump down into 2020. You know, we've been watching Back to the Future at my house. Maybe there's this time travel. We would all skip 2020, okay? We would not say, like, this is the year I'm going to go into. But Jesus would appear into what was happening in the world, this, all the sinfulness and all this brokenness. He said, I'm going. Get me into the car. I'm going. I don't think that we would do that. And so he went much further, though. He entered our world, and then he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Now, the crucifixion, I think we hear that so much in the church world. And you know, we wear we work crosses. Somebody might be wearing one this morning. Or you're you know, wearing a ring. Or you have a tattoo of it somewhere. And it's just, you know, we just think, oh, like, yeah, the cross. Like, of course, duh, like we're Christians. Like, we know that. But it wasn't some simple, convenient way of executing people. I'm sure there's much easier ways to do it. No other form of death could match the crucifixion as an absolute destruction of a person. It was the ultimate counterpart to the the divine majesty of the pre-existent Christ. And so it was the complete opposite of, of what was rightfully Christ, what was rightfully His as being part of the Trinity, and so it, it's a complete opposite that I think we sometimes just miss in the church because we've just gotten so numb to this idea of the cross and, and, and how it was that Christ died. But it was ultimately his ex, ultimate expression to God as his obedience to why it is that he came. He entered our broken world. And he lived out that life. Now think about the great characteristics of Jesus. What marked his life? Humility, obedience, and self-renunciation. He didn't come to dominate men and women. It says, but he came to serve them. He wanted not only his way, he wanted God's way. He wanted not to exalt himself, but to renounce all of his glory for the sake of the world. I mean, think about how Jesus' earthly life ended here before his resurrection. Like, does that look like you're really exalting yourself? Does that look like you're putting yourself out there to say, look, it's all about me? Like, no, it's, it's the complete opposite. And so in humility, he was obedience and self-renounced himself. But if these are the, the, the markers, if these are the characteristics of Jesus' life, how much more should those be the hallmarks of our life? That we should be known as selfless people, that we should be known as ones who aren't self-seeking, and that we should put to uh, destroy any selfishness in our community because we want to walk in the likeness of Christ in our fellowship. And that we want to be, a, and albeit a pale reflection, a reflection of what it is that Jesus did while he was here on earth. And so what Paul is telling us in verse 8 is that because Jesus died for our sin, that we can walk away from our old pattern of living and put to sin to death in our lives. Once again, this idea of looking out for just yourself, that, that comes from sin. And so he's saying, because of this, you can actually leave that. Because of this, you can actually walk a different life and tell a different story. And so this is unbelievably good news. Who's it good news for? It's good news for you. It's good news for your family. It's good news for those friends that you can't get along with. It's good friends, uh, good news for your coworkers and your neighbors. And it's good news for your spouse and any other relationship you have. It's good news. Now, it's easy to believe destructive lies. You might say, what do you, what do you mean by that? It's easy to believe a lie that you'll tell yourself to the extent of, this is just who you are. <laughs> You're never going to be any different than this. Don't you remember roommate after roommate after roommate? Don't you remember job after job after job? Don't you remember? You've been to like 10 churches now in the city of Portland. Like, don't you remember that? And since the problem always comes back to you, and so it's easy to believe this lie, like, man, it's just never going to get better. This is who I am. People don't like it, they can get over it. Like, no, no, no. Paul's saying, calm down. It's easy to believe this lie by ourselves. And Paul's saying, no, it doesn't have to be this way. That can stop today. Going forward, it can look different. These things don't have to define your relationship. Jesus Christ and his death and him risen, that is what should define you. Your relationship with someone, you know, you can say, and I found myself there, and maybe you have two. You can say, you know, I'm over you. I've given you two chances. I know that there's this thing called a third strike, and I don't even want to get to it. You've struck out twice. I'm done with you. I'm, I'm done putting up with this. Especially if someone's being manipulative in the relationship. 
But here's the, what Paul is telling us, especially for those in the church. No relationship is hopeless. If that person is following Jesus, especially you can hold on to that hope. And then you, can, you can hope that one day they will put to death the destructive patterns in their life just as Jesus walked out of the tomb. And if, if they aren't a Christ follower, then you can plead and cry to God that he would have mercy on them and that he would save them so that they can get out of that pattern. And that you can show them that life doesn't have to continue to be this way. There is another way. And so Jesus empowers us to have healthy relationships with those in our lives and then with those of us who are here this morning. And he comes in and says, as Jesus did this, as Jesus lived this out, verse 9, it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so it's because of Jesus' humiliation that became the grounds for his exaltation. By humbling himself on the cross out of love, he demonstrated that he truly shared the divine nature of God, who is love. About Jesus won the hearts of men and women. Jesus won your heart if you're in Christ this morning, not by forcing you through his power. He could have done that. I mean, God is God. God could have written it very differently and said, I'm just going to come in and force them this way. But no, he came in and he showed us love, a love that we could not resist. Once again, as I look around at our city and as as you're probably like me, you're getting text messages and phone calls and people are concerned about what's happening here. And, and, you know, is the whole city under fire and siege and, and is at war, which I appreciate people caring about us. But you know what those people need? They need a love that they cannot resist. They need a love that they have not seen and that only can be offered in the person of Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And so because of Jesus' life, because of Jesus' death, and because of his resurrection, there's hope for our future. This means that a concept like verses 3 and 4, remember your homework, you can actually empower us and give us hope because of Jesus. If you try to live out those verses on your own, I promise you're going to fail. You're going to leave and you're going to fall flat on your face. Maybe before you get to the car. Or maybe when you get home. But if, in Jesus, he empowers us to live out those verses. And here's the reality. As you try to live those out, here's what's going to happen to you. It's going to feel a lot like death. Death of what? Of me being the most important person. And so, do you know what comes with death, though? As a person of faith, what comes with death is a resurrection. And so imagine in your relationships, if you lived out a thousand little deaths, day in and day out, you know, so maybe my death is, Andrea, you hang the picture here. Andrea, we paint the colors here. And, you know, maybe I just kind of, oh, inside, inside. You know, and then eventually I look at the whole house and go, I don't know if I had anything to do with this other than putting some nails and screws in the wall. But how much more that relationship would be? And so we see that Jesus rules, his rules reign supreme for all time. And so there might be a thousand little deaths that you have to go and live in the next week or the next month. But I promise there will be more beautiful resurrection in your relationships, in your friendships, in your marriage, and in your workplace, and in our church, because we are putting on display the gospel, and with the gospel comes new life. And so by living out those thousand little deaths and kind of putting our selfish desires to the side, that we will see this unity that Paul is talking about. Friendships that you think are gone, and I've got some of those in my life, okay? I've got some deep wounds down in here. So the friendships I think are gone, as, as Paul speaking to me this morning, he's saying that can actually be reunited if this were to happen if this were to take place. Your marriage can go deeper and be more sacrificial than you ever thought was possible if Jesus empowers it. And you'll see a church really be rallied around the most important thing in spite of our preferences and coming together to live out this mission that God has placed us on. And I was going to wrap up 
and verses 10 and 11, which also mean I'm going to wrap up so you can all breathe a sigh of relief. He says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And so we see this astounding union of Jesus' divine and human natures that's reinforced by this illusion, which comes from Isaiah 45, 23, where it says, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. The fact that these words can now be applied to God's messianic agent, Jesus Christ is Lord, shows that he is fully divine, but he has laid down that divinity once again for the sake of mankind. Think about it, this is really one of the most important verses in all of the New Testament. Because in it, this is what we read, that the aim of God, right? That's something I want to pay attention to. The aim of God is that one day, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So if you've confessed that, amen. But think about all the people in our city who haven't confessed that. It says that one day that they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the day will come when people call Jesus Lord, but they will do so to the glory of God, the Father. So all those people who think you're foolish for following Jesus, all those people who think you're wasting your time at being part of the church, you know, our city that's known for being atheistic and least religious and all those things, that those people will confess Jesus as Lord. Jesus draws men and women to himself that he may draw them closer to God. Now in the Philippian church, what we see is there's some who who gotten off of that aim. Their aim had kind of turned towards something different. I think all that's happening in our culture and our world right now, I'm watching that sometimes. And that's our tendency and that's our temptation that our focus will become only on this agenda or this item. They says the aim of Jesus was to serve others. And the Philippian church were those whose aim was to focus people on themselves. Look at me. Look what is that I am doing. But Jesus' aim was to focus people's eyes on God. So as followers of Jesus, Paul is saying we must not only think of ourselves, but of others. And not of, not of our glory or their glory, but of the glory of Jesus. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to take a few minutes just to reflect on these verses. There's a lot here. He hits on the Trinity. He, he, he hits on how it is that we stay unified. It's on Jesus and that every tongue will confess and bow to Jesus at one point. And so considering your own life as you reflect, what is it that you saw this morning in this passage that might lead you to praise God? Maybe there's an area of sin that you need to repent of, something you've just been holding on to, and that you would trust in the gracious promises of Jesus. Here's the good news about the church. There is no need to pretend that you have your life together. Because here's the reality. You don't have your life together. But by faith in the finished work of Jesus, the church was and is today the one community where it's okay to be broken. So it's okay to be broken, church. It's the one community that's okay to be weak. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to be discouraged. It's okay if you're angry or depressed or hurting because we stand in awe of Jesus, who is none of those things. So it's okay at church to not be okay. I think sometimes we trick ourselves in our minds and we think, this is the one place that I got to come and dress a little bit nicer. It's the first collar shirt I've worn all week. If I was back in the Southeast, I'd probably have tucked it in. And, you know, I got to pretend I've got my act cleaned up and I'm all good to go. But like, sometimes you're not that and it's okay. And so the church is the one place it's okay to not be okay. There's, it, there's no need to pretend that you have your life together. But in Jesus, here's, here's also the good news. We are free to confess 
our frailty. We are free to leave the exhausting madness of trying to hide the junk of our lives. Because that's what we do, and that's exhausting. Right? We try to kind of keep all the junk in, and it's like, no, that, that's exhausting madness. But just as we are free to humbly receive the encouragement from a brother or sister who reminds us of the person and promises of Jesus, the one who loved us and gave his life to bring us into table fellowship with God himself. And so it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. And that God has provided a different way and he's given us one another to help bring us out of that. I've, I've used this analogy so many different weeks, but I just think of someone who's getting off somewhere, or someone who's sinking. If this were a big swimming pool and one of you went down, we would grab you. If I had to grab Jacob by the hair, I'd grab him by the hair. If you had to grab me by the beard, hopefully someone would grab me by the beard. Or if you're wearing a life jacket, grab your life jacket. Like, we're going to save you. We're not going to just let you sink. And so that's what we are to do with one another. And in this family called the church, we're free to get out of our seats and we're free to join others and their joyous celebrations. And we're free to join them as they cry through their pains. In the church, we are free to toast together and have our tiffs. We're free to encourage and receive encouragement from one another. And we're free to share our belongings and receive the belongings. And we are the ones who found ourselves in tough times. Here we, are, we find a place called church where we can know and be known. We are needed and needy. And may the city of Portland, our world, hear about this freedom in the context of family that we call church. And so church, here's how we're going to respond to that this morning. We're going to have Jacob come back up. And he's going to lead us through two songs as he normally does. But in, in the first song, we're going to have communion. Now, it's a little bit different this week uh, than it was uh, last month. But the way that I have it set up is there is a cracker already in a Ziploc bag for you. So that part's taken care of. There's hand sanitizer up there. And then uh, you can grab your own little cup. I'll go ahead and, and just take the, the lid off. Here, I'll do this. You know, we're on this socially time. So you guys can see I've got generous hand sanitizer. I can smell the alcohol in my hands. I'll go ahead and open this for us. And then you can grab your own cup and pour it. If you're not comfortable because of, you know, someone's touched it, totally get that. But if you are, it's there available for you. And what we're going to do, and even if you choose not to take it because of COVID stuff, that when you take that cracker, when you take that bread, be reminded of what we're even looking at here. That was Jesus came and humbled himself, that Jesus' body was broken for, for you and for me and for our world, which empowered us to live out this different life that Paul was showing us here. And as you dip that cracker into the juice, in this case, it's actually smart water, that you would be reminded of Jesus' blood that was shed for you on the cross. Thing is, we forget this week in and week out. And so when we come together like this, we're able to be reminded of that and then go out and, and be sent out of this place, out of this park, and live out that reality because of Jesus and because of his humbleness. So let me pray for us. Jacob will come back up and then um, respond as you are ready. God, we thank you for this day once again. God, I really, I just think about this passage and describe it as united humility. God, that's not easy to do. It's not easy at all. I want to do the things that I want to do and live the way that I want to live. But God, that you've called us to something different as your people and as your church. My God, I ask this morning as we take just a couple minutes and reflect that we would be reminded of, of how you came and how you humbled yourself. And that it's for that reason that we can live this out, for no other reason at all. God, if there's an area of sin that we would confess that, we repent of that before we respond in communion. God, if there's a relationship that's broken that we would follow up this week and that, that God, we would be self sacrificial in order to help repair and restore that relationship. 
God, we give this time to you as we want to give all honor and glory to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.